Welcome to EDI on BIV. I'm Haley Wooden, Executive Editor at Business in Vancouver, and we're broadcasting today from the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, including Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Last week, the remains of 215 children were found at the site of the former Kamloops Indian Residential School. In the words of the Chief of Tecumloops Tehsehuatan, it is an unthinkable loss, one that was spoken about but never documented. And it stands as an example of Canada's brutal and traumatic history of colonialism and its horrifying mistreatment of Indigenous peoples. This week, families, communities, and the country continue to grieve. And on the show today, I want to create space to talk about this further. I'm joined by Corey Wilson. She is the Executive Director of Indigenous Initiatives and Partnerships at BCIT. She's also chair of the National Indigenous Education Committee of Colleges and Institutions Canada and an Indigenous strategist. Corey, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. You know, the world learned about this lost last week, but for the families and communities, they've been grieving this loss for decades. And I'm hoping you can shed light on how examples and news like this are perceived and discussed in an Indigenous context and how that might differ from how a non-Indigenous person might view and process this kind of news. Well, I think for many non-Indigenous people, it is shocking. It's the first time they knew of such a thing or heard of such a thing. Uh, of course, with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, people's awareness about Indian residential schools has been increased and just overall knowledge and, and uh, support of reconciliation has happened since the release of that report in 2015. However, for Indigenous people, it's just another reminder of what we already know. And we've already always known, I myself uh, can think of three distinct times that I spoke with residential school survivors whose only job while at residential school uh, between the ages of 12 and 14, these are, these are all three men, uh, and they, went, they didn't go to Kamloops, they went to three other different schools, their job was to dig the graves. So we have known as Indigenous people that many of our fellow, you know, in my case, ancestors and, and aunts and uncles, never returned from residential school. So this is something that we carry with us and the unknown and the obviously the challenges. And then of course, subsequent to residential schools, it, even though you never went to residential schools, in my case, neither of my parents went to residential school uh, just because my, you know, my dad is particularly was the youngest in his family, but we all suffer from intergenerational trauma that comes from family members who've attended residential schools. So that cannot be dismissed. I mean, that is a, a massive weight, a massive trauma that we carry around. And I think the other thing that's really important for non-Indigenous Canadians to particularly remember is that we told you this. We have told Canada this, whether it's me personally talking about it, whether it's BCIT doing a session on residential schools, whether it's the you know, various organizations doing sessions, the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples that was published in 1996, which incidentally is the last year that the residential schools closed in Canada. Uh, the, the last one closed in British Columbia in 1984, but through the TRC, through RCAP, through Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women and Girls, we have told Canada this, but Canada has chose not to listen to this. And so the fact that it comes as a shock, uh, though I appreciate it and acknowledge how challenging that must be for many people, my challenge back is what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do in the places and spaces that you occupy? How are you going to make a difference? And listen to what we have said. This is genocide. 
215 acts of genocide, but they're one of, sadly, tens of thousands of acts of genocide in Canada. Thank you for saying that, and thank you for that call to action. I want to ask you if you think that things might be different after this discovery. As you pointed out, many, many people, yourself included, have talked about this before. It has already been true. It has already been documented and proven for so many people, and yet that is sometimes ignored. Do you think it'll be different this time? Has this been a shocking enough event for non-Indigenous people? Well, I think as an Indigenous person, I have to have hope. Um, I don't think I, I don't want to get marred down into the trauma and the and the uh, negative and and history that it that is very oppressive and bears you know scars my soul if you want to say that I have to continue to have hope um, I do believe that when fundamentally when people know better they do better so that's how I get through my day is try to make sure I find opportunities and provide opportunities for people to ask me what they want to ask me to dispel myths, to dispel stereotypes, to inspire and empower people to be true, authentic allies in reconciliation. So, yes, I do think, you know, much like the George, George Floyd uh, uh, incident, which, of course, as you know, was one about one year ago. Uh, maybe this is Canada's George Floyd moment because it, George Floyd, of course, united, uh, ignited, sorry, a lot of things in Canada, but hopefully this is, it is it. Um, but sadly, it's not going to be the last. And I think it's also important to keep it in context of this past two weeks in Canada. We've had the trial of the people, Joyce Echaquan uh, people. We've had the re revelation of the forced Indigenous women and girls being forced to have IUDs, some as young as 12 and 13 years old. We've had some shootings in committees or in communities. We've had the evidence of the overdose, overdose opioid crisis that is disproportionately affecting Indigenous people. So this is one of the traumas that we experience as Indigenous people. And yes, that call to action is to ask yourself, what can you do to support and help? I've had it put to me that to have meaningful reconciliation you need that truth piece, the truth in the truth and reconciliation. How much work is there left to be done until we have a more widely held and shared truth that acknowledges the truth that many Indigenous people know to be true? Well, I think that depends on Canada. It depends on our two levels of government, government as well, of course, as our municipal levels of government. It depends on businesses. It depends on companies. And ultimately, it depends on individual Canadians. I think I always think if, indi if individual Canadians understood the difference between equity and equality, recognize and acknowledge their own privilege, recognize and acknowledge their own bias, whether conscious or otherwise, and did whatever they could every day to ensure that the privilege and bias is not there and that they extend the privilege to others and they view things with an equitable lens. Um, and also, uh, I think 75% of the work is done. If people could actually do the self-awareness work that is required. And that doesn't mean that your heart, because I hear people say, well, I'm not privileged. I had to work really hard or I grew up poor. Well, so did I. We all had, we grew up, growing up poor in Canada is very different than growing up poor in another country. And just because you had to work hard, that doesn't mean you don't have privilege. So recognize those three things, acknowledge those three things. Every room that you enter, every space that you occupy, look around and see if everybody looks like you, ask yourself, what am I going to do to make a difference? And if we're talking in terms of the business community, 
The reality is, is if, if indigenous people do well, your business will do well. We are, represent 5% of the Canadian population. We're disproportionately represented at the negative end of every socioeconomic indicator. In some cases, you have 60, 90% of the children in care are Indigenous. It costs far more to keep somebody in uh, foster care, the same as it costs more to keep somebody incarcerated for a year. But let's, and of course, my job at BCIT, and this is one of the things that I love about being at BCIT, is the commitment to truly doing things outside the box, looking for ways to ensure that we, we reach out to communities, giving people new skills and abilities so that they have a job, so that they have a way to contribute to the Canadian economy and provide for their families. I mean, the majority of Indigenous people make less than $30,000 a year. You can't possibly survive in Canada on that amount of money. So how do we reach out as, you know, business, Maybe you want to ask that question afterwards, but I was going to go right into it. But, you know, one thing for sure that businesses can do is just ask, well, one, ask yourselves those questions about equity, uh, pr uh, privilege and bias. And then how can you get more Indigenous employees in there? Um, but I'll, I'll leave that to you to ask that question. <laughs> well, no, that's a perfect, you're doing my job for me and I appreciate it. I, I, uh, I want to preface it by saying that after the killing of George Floyd, we saw a lot of businesses reach out and they turned their social media icons black and they supported Black Lives Matter. And we're seeing a similar response now. A lot of organizations expressing condolences, flags at various locations, lowered to half mast. And one of the questions I have and many people have rightfully asked is, is it talk? What happens beyond that? Where is the change going to come from? So I'll frame it that way as I put the question back to you. What are some more meaningful and concrete steps business leaders could take today if they're genuine in their empathy for what's happening and willing to make a change? Yeah, well, I think you said the key point there, if they're genuine in that empathy, because anybody can lower for front of so I, I, again, I think you, you hit on the right word there, genuine. It has to be genuine. So lowering of the flags or changing your profile picture to orange or to black or whatever it is, uh, that, that, mainly, that mainly just, if you want to use an analogy of a track, that just gets you on the actual track. That doesn't mean you've been given a lane. That doesn't mean you're at the starting gate. That doesn't mean you can run the race. And the most important thing in this work is uh, to ensure that it is genuine, that it is authentic, and that you are making those changes. Uh, too often, things are too performative, and and that doesn't do anybody well. It doesn't. It may make somebody feel well for a moment, but it doesn't mean anything. So, in terms of businesses, in terms of companies, and how they can reach out and do something that is much more substantial and authentic, is again look at yourself, look at those three words, look at your company, do a do a baseline. How many BIPOC, if you want to use that word, not everybody's happy with that word, but how many, even just simply look at how many women do you have? We haven't achieved parity yet for women in this country, let alone for Indigenous women. So do a little baseline. What is your business? What is your company? Reach out to people depending on where you are. Um, I know there's various, you know, at BCIT, of course, we have our Indigenous, Indigenous team. Uh, the Board of Trade has their Diversity Leadership Council. I know with uh, Greg Davignon's group as well. There is the a business group. There are business people, the indigenous business people that are out there that uh, you can talk to. And again, it's about building those authentic relationships and sustainable relationships, but and also just simply thinking about what, what is your business? You know, when you're looking at your hiring practices, when you're looking at your internship programs, why don't you just let a kid come in that's 14 years old, that's maybe interested in whatever your, say your business is making widgets, and this kid loves widgets. 
Well, just pay them for two weeks to come in and work at your company and do all different types of things. So a, a more informal type internship. Uh, the other thing is just to read and to educate yourself. You know, read, if you haven't read the calls to action, read the calls to action, read some of the books and the literature. This month is Indigenous Awareness Month, Indigenous History Month, Indigenous National Indigenous Peoples Day is on June 21st. We've just finished Asian and, and Black Month, Black History Months. Read some of the books. I know Indigo's, Indigo has, uh, you, you can just Google books to read. So do your own education and your own learning. And, and the key in all of that is to make sure it's authentic and to make sure you, you listen more than you speak and be open to it. Because it, it, some of this work can challenge your, your values and your beliefs, but be open to it and look to build authentic uh, Sorry, we lost you there at the end, but I think we got we got the end there. I know that change and culture shifts often are set at the top and trickle down. But for people listening to the show who maybe aren't at the C-suite level, not necessarily in a leadership position, but are concerned and maybe want to play a part in facilitating a change. Are these kinds of discussions, should they be had in a workplace setting, maybe among colleagues? Is there a way to approach these issues and maybe have a theme of our show is uncomfortable conversations within a workplace setting where it maybe doesn't feel like a professional thing to do, but, but maybe it is a needed thing. Well, I definitely am on board with having those uncomfortable conversations. This will not happen. There will be no change unless people have create brave and courageous spaces and overcome their fears, overcome these challenges and actually have those uncomfortable conversations. And as you said earlier, learn the truth. We must know that truth. Um, again, I think if, if individuals do their own work, half the battle is, is won there. If individuals do their own work, uh, you know, if people uh, do their own learning as well and dispel myths, like, you know, one that I hear often from various people is that Indigenous people don't pay taxes. Why are we supporting these people? But nobody knows the reality is, is there's only small group, there's three constitutionally recognized group, Indigenous, Mate, or sorry, First Nations, Métis and Inuit, only First Nations people have an opportunity not to pay income tax, and only then if they have a status card, and only then if 60% of their income is earned on a reserve. So it is such a, and then again, when you look at the map, and the majority of Indigenous people earn less than $30,000, $40,000 a year, they're not paying taxes anyways. No Canadian does at that rate. I mean, they do, but you get it back in benefits and whatnot. So do the math. Quit, quit saying we don't pay taxes and we don't contribute to the Canadian economy. So being able to, and being able to dispel those myths, again, that's with your own learning. And a lot of movements do start from the grassroots. Um, you do need to have a champion at the top at the C-suite, if you will, or the CEO and the board of directors as well. There's a responsibility for board of directors of companies who are doing business in the province of British Columbia to understand DRIPA to understand UNDRIP and to, to recognize that because this is unceded territory. Of course, there have been some treaties subsequent to uh, contact and, and uh, more contemporary modern treaties, but the majority of the land is unceded land. And we're not going away. I know my people and my family, we're not leaving British Columbia and we want to be a partner in a prosperous uh, uh lucrative if you want to use that word and I don't mean lucrative necessarily and financially but in a in a country in a province particularly that 
allows and elevates all voices and advocates for all voices and ensures that everybody has an opportunity to pursue self-determination and to contribute to the growth of this province. And again, by growth, I don't just mean financial growth, by the wellness of this province, by the, the beauty, we're called beautiful British Columbia for a reason, because we're a stunning province and we have tremendous opportunities and we will be even that much stronger if all equity seeking groups and particularly indigenous people are included in the, the future of this province. And, you know, there's estimates that uh, Indigenous people um, can contribute $100 billion to the Canadian economy if we are allowed to actually do that. So, and that's going to benefit everybody in the end, right? Absolutely. It's clear there's still work to be done to understand and reconcile the past, but on the topic of having uncomfortable conversations, I wanna ask you if there are any uncomfortable discussions about what may continue to happen today that's not in the past that we need to have and have yet to have as a society. I think the, I think the, the, the uncomfortable conversations I think are again, looking at ourselves. What are we contributing to the perpetuation of colonization? or to the system, because these are systemic barriers, right? You guys, I know business people understand standard deviation and profits and margins and all of those things. We make up 5% of the Canadian population. Standard deviation, I'll be generous and say we could be 10% represented of in any statistic or area, but we make up 90% in some. 50% in some, that is absolutely unacceptable. So the uncomfortable conversation has to be an automatic recognition that systemic barriers and racisms exist in British Columbia, exists within all of our institutions. Of course it exists in Canada, but let's focus on BC. It exists because there's no other way to explain those deviations from 5%. So let's stop talking about whether racism exists and stop asking me to prove to you that my family has suffered from racism or genocide or those, don't ask me those questions anymore. Accept the fact that there are systemic barriers that exist in all of the institutions in our laws. And the fact that everybody insists on Robert rules of order, that is not an indigenous practice. That's a colonial practice that in many ways doesn't allow for free expression, creativity and innovation. And the reality is, is businesses that are going to do well, and we've seen countless studies, even out of the United States, that companies with the most diversity in the board level or senior management level are the companies that do well. And they, are, they were, for the, the initial studies, were really only looking at women. The fact that then they termed that to be diversity. So imagine if you have the diversity in other lived experiences and the innovation that can come from that, um, that, and that will set British Columbia apart from other places if we truly, and, and the reality is DRIPA has been passed in British Columbia. So the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People is something that all businesses are going to have to consider. And it may be frightening, but you know what, baby steps, ask, look for help. And that's, I guess, a bit of the uncomfortableness is, is admitting or asking for help. Cause you know, most of us aren't really good, aren't really good at asking for help. But you know, if you're a non-indigenous person, tell me how else you would know this information, 
unless you asked for it. And to our credit, our, our education system has included now the provincial education system K to 12 in the last four to five years, mandatory Indigenous knowledge. But I don't think any of your listeners are just recently graduated from high school. So we missed that um, in, in terms of our learning. So you don't know what you don't know. So just ask, because when you know better, you will do better. And I think there are a lot of, uh, we're waiting, we're ready. We're, we, I'm just as invested as you are in ensuring this province is successful and this province it meets its targets and this province does whatever we want and dream this pro- province to do. Because I have children. I have children that are you know, gonna go into the workforce and wanna make a career and a life for themselves. So we are all in this together. So that's another thing that, that uncomfortable is, is not othering us, recognize that we're all in this together and it will take all of us being honest with ourselves, being self-aware and recognizing and, um, you know, and acknowledging the systemic barriers and racism and then figuring out really concrete solutions moving forward. And the other thing that I ask people often is how much do you need? How much money do we all need? How much, or, you know, maybe you don't want to frame it that way, but you could also frame it. How much can you give? whether that's your knowledge, whether that's your time, whether that's financial, whether that's, you know, sometimes I've seen students in my, in my 20 years of post-secondary who have been accepted to the program, the tuition's paid, but you know what, they don't have the $200 for steel-toed boots. You, for you and I, that's not a big deal. I could go down and buy five pairs if I wanted to, but that is just that little barrier is what keeps somebody out of a program. I've also seen it in a, a, um, a student that, uh, had a job in a restaurant, but couldn't afford to do pay for the, I think it's $68 or it's under $100 anyways, for the, the food safe course. If that's what's keeping somebody, like, how do we change that? So it's figuring out those small little barriers and overcoming those. I think you said it so well when you said, when we know better, we do better. And I think that's a great message to leave off on. Corey, I really appreciate you taking the time to join the show. There have been a number of great pieces of advice and good calls to action too throughout this conversation. And I appreciate that. So thank you. And we're definitely here at BCIT. We have an open source Indigenous awareness course. It's a place to start for anybody. We're open for any questions, any feedback. Happy to work with anyone. Perfect. I hope people take you up on that offer. Yeah, great. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks, Corey. Bye. Bye. That's Corey Wilson, Executive Director of Indigenous Initiatives and Partnerships at BCIT. I'm Haley Wooden, and this has been EDI on BIV. I encourage you to subscribe by searching BIV Today on your favorite podcast app. You can also do that at BIV.com audio. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back with a new episode on Tuesday. <laughs>